This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today, we're doing a film called Borderline. I'll kick us off. Borderline is a new film out this year from Denmark. It is a really beautiful film. The cinematography is noticeable in a positive way. The film follows three characters, a Danish guy, his Danish girlfriend, and the English girl the guy sleeps with while on a business trip to London. The Danish guy is a sellout. He has, in nearly every respect, boxed himself into a life he doesn't actually want. He'd like to be a poet, but he works in advertising. His girlfriend, a medical doctor, wants to have kids and settle down. The guy says explicitly that he doesn't want to make a bourgeois family, but if that's true, why is he dating a professional and working in advertising? He has adopted the bourgeois lifestyle in every respect except one, and he clings to this last one as the basis for a cowardly and increasingly pitiful resistance. Unsurprisingly, when he meets a cool girl at a party, a girl who is a writer and an editor, he wants to sleep with her to escape his bourgeois condition. Unlike him, she is a real artist, and she pays the price for her commitment to her craft. She has little money of her own, and she lives with her parents. They don't respect her because she's not conventionally successful. At 35, she's been at this for a while, The few friends she still has view her as troubled or wayward because she hasn't achieved independence. She's clearly very educated and clever, but years of living without any external validation are taking their toll. She desperately wants a relationship with a man who is creative or intellectual, but who actually has the resources to rescue her from her dependence on the generosity of family and friends. Our Danish guy is perfect. He is a poet at heart, but he has a real job. She gets to make fun of him for being a sellout while at the same time hoping and praying he will decide she is special and take her along for the ride. Unfortunately for her, our Danish guy is a coward. He not only will never be a poet, he will never break up with his girlfriend to be with a woman who doesn't make money. When he hangs out with the English girl, he tells her that he's willing to do whatever she wants, but this isn't true, and in this sense, he is a liar. He does tell the English girl that he has a girlfriend, but he claims it's an open relationship, and even when this clearly distresses her, he nonetheless has sex with her. He leads her on so that he can get sex and stimulating conversations from her, but is careful to never explicitly commit to her in any meaningful way. This allows her to feel deceived, and it allows him to feel she's the one who has misunderstood the situation. It is true that her desperation has motivated her to read the dynamic as more romantic than it is, but it is also true that he exploits her desperation until she stops being fun. When our Danish guy goes back to Denmark, his girlfriend pressures him to have kids. When he resists the pressure, she takes him to a party, drugs him up, and sleeps with him. Unbeknownst to our Danish guy, he is now on the path to becoming a father, his transformation into a bourgeois dad nearing completion his seemingly normal, healthy girlfriend has sexually assaulted him. And in the meantime, our cool English girl stops being so cool. She calls up an important client accusing our Danish guy of rape. She posts nude photos of him on the internet. She gives his phone number to people. She does everything she can to disrupt the bourgeois life he has chosen over a life with her. At the end of the film, our Danish guy tells his girlfriend what happened in London. She laughs it off, knowing full well that his unemployment has taken away any remaining leverage he might have possessed. In the bathroom, our Danish guy discovers that his girlfriend is pregnant. 
invited to the same art exhibition as the English girl, he decides to go and talk to her again. As crazy as the English girl is, the film suggests that his Danish girlfriend is worse. He asks her for a cigarette and the credits roll. All three of these characters are highly educated professional class millennials, but each has chosen a different path. The Danish girlfriend is straightforwardly committed to the bourgeois lifestyle. She's ready for kids and comfortable with her high paying medical job. The English girl has dropped out, but it's not the 90s anymore. If you want to make art, you must live with your parents and woe unto you if they judge you. The Danish guy lives in a contradictory way, feigning to have adopted the bourgeois lifestyle while rebelling against it in cowardly, superficial ways that ultimately harm the people around him. None of these people are healthy or pleasant to be around. All of them treat one another abominably. The Danish girlfriend commits assault. The English girl makes false rape accusations. The Danish guy allows these women to think he will deliver for them. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, he chickens out. By suggesting that the Danish girlfriend is the worst character, the film tempts us to ask if we agree, but all of these characters are very clearly products of the capitalist incentive structure. The English girl thought she had the option to become an artist with dignity, but the economic system took that option from her while she wasn't looking. She puts up a feminist front, but she's been reduced to desperately pining for a white knight. The Danish guy thought he could compromise with the system while retaining some distance from it in his private life, but when the women you sleep with are subject to economic stress, they become mentally unstable and dangerous to be around, and the seemingly stable woman he dates has purchased that stability at a high price. Yes, the Danish girlfriend embraced the system totally, becoming the character who makes explicit what the social structure is implicitly communicating to all of the characters but she has struggled to find a man who shares her willingness to embrace the structure. Ultimately, she imposes the pregnancy because until she is pregnant, her embrace is insufficiently total. She is anxious to have children, anxious to ascend the relationship escalator and reach its summit. She cannot be content without a continuous sense of progress. She is the character who is totally trapped in ideology, and she can only be happy so long as the people around her play along and follow the same norms she observes. She will allow the Danish guy his small transgressions, provided he submits on the fundamentals. He must work a professional job, and he must reproduce. As the economic system becomes more competitive, the people who secure the bag secure it at ever higher prices to their psychological well-being. The people who possess the outward markers of success are increasingly psychopathic or narcissistic. At the same time, the people who drop out fall into an increasingly threadbare safety net. They are increasingly anxious, they feel traumatized, they become clingy and creepy. Which way, Danish man? After all, this is a love triangle. He seems to have a choice, but he really has no choice at all, at least not so long as he remains committed to himself as an individual. As long as the man is focused on his own survival, his own gratification, he will take the safe path through life. But this path is safe in only the most superficial senses. In point of fact, he will fall into various abusive dynamics in which he both abuses and is abused by other seriously unwell people. This system can only be escaped if individuals are willing to suffer on behalf of something outside themselves, to put themselves in harm's way for a better world. But if individuals are too cowardly and too self-obsessed, they will go on hurting themselves and each other in the name of a safety that is increasingly empty. Well, that's what I think anyway. Let's hear what Nina has to say. Yeah, what a great reading. 
Benjamin, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, just to note a couple of technical things about the film Borderline. Yeah, so it's a new film out this year. The director is a, a Danish-English guy. It's his first uh, feature film. Uh, his name is Marco Sanderman. And uh, a point of admission, the film was written by my friend, <laughs> Daniel Miller, uh, who is one of the editors of IM1776 um, and somebody who is an art critic and thinker and, and so on, and also obviously writes screenplays. Um, and this, I know that this, this screenplay was finished quite a long time ago. Um, I think, like you say, the film is a very uh, assured piece of work, like cinematographically. I think the acting's very good. They have some really quite um, strong actors um, in the film. It's it's very beautiful, like you say. Uh, I think, you know, it's for a first feature, it's, it's impressive. Um, I... When when it came to an end, I sort of felt it could have been longer somehow. Like it was, you know, there was more to more to explore, perhaps. Um, and I think this, I've, I've discussed the idea of of borderline with with Daniel, the writer. So, and and his sort of take on it, really. And it's it's actually interesting because I just saw just an hour ago. There's a tweet by and a short video by Chris Chris Rufo, who's you know a kind of American commentator and and theorist who's often. I suppose trying to analyze uh, the state of play. Uh, I guess um, you might describe him as one might describe him as anti woke, but I think it's too superficial. Like he's trying to get underneath some of the current pathologies, and he's just put out a video about the idea that um, the society we live in is increasingly based around cluster B personality disorders, um, and that borderline, histrionic, and narcissistic, and antisocial personality disorders are all being rewarded. Um, in the, and by the institutions, um, and that we live in um, a pathocracy, so a, a, an environment that's governed by emotion rather than, let's say, reason or um, or theology. We don't live in a theocracy, obviously, and I'll come back to that. Um, but we live instead, increasingly, in a state that is, uh, a, or a political environment that is is governed and overwhelmed let's say by emotional displays often in of very extreme kind and obviously this to get back to the film the film is called borderline and we we would think perhaps that the english woman is has suffers from borderline personality disorder which is characterized by um a kind of push me pull you relationship to others so the classic line would be um i i hate you don't leave me so this kind of impossible tension of pushing people away while also wanting them to uh, to love you, uh, a kind of incomplete or, or uncertain sense of self, uh, a kind of need uh, for affirmation from the outside world, no matter how kind of awful. And there's a kind of very uh, violent scene where she, having travelled to Copenhagen to try to see the guy who she's basically at this point now stalking, um, she ends up uh, asking, or I don't know how to put it, sort of cajoling two men in a bar to have sort of violent sex with her in the, the bathroom in this very degraded way. Uh, and it's clear, you know, you'd, you would say from that scene that this is somebody who is acting impulsively. You know, they, she asks them to hurt her physically. It's obviously a very risky, high-risk kind of behaviour, Um and then she goes to the hospital where she happens to be treated by the the main bourgeois guy's um, wife um, in a sort of ironic um, coincidence. 
And but the borderline, you know, in speaking to Daniel about this concept, is not just the the mental illness, and then perhaps these mental illnesses are kind of dominating our institutions now, but also the borderline or the fuzzy line between things that perhaps could or used to have divisions, so the public and the private, uh, for example, or the relationship, the monogamous relationship that is now somehow an open relationship. You could say that the bourgeois relationship has always made room for something like the mistress or you know, particularly, I don't know, the French model, <laughs> like the role that there is, you know, or I don't know, I was reading something about Japan recently, and, and there's quite a high tolerance, apparently, for prostitution within marriage, um, you know, men men seeking uh, sexual encounters outside of marriage. But here you have something that's more um, more fluid, and, and the sort of enabling mechanism would be, as, as very uh, clearly depicted in the film, um, is the phone, right? So the technology that permits forms of communication that break down the boundaries between, let's say, the bourgeois hermetic life and the outside, right? And the outside would include, like you say, the, the woman who's, whose desires have been thwarted in multiple ways, who is, who is therefore hurt, and she's lashing out, she's reacting, and she, she, in order to try and get a reaction from him, is obviously prompted to commit increasingly sort of seemingly insane gestures, right? Setting up Facebook pages in his name with a naked photo of him and accusing him of, of rape, as you say. Very strange moment in the, in the film where he tells his wife why he has been let go from his silly job, but silly but professional job, and he tells her it's because this woman that he slept with in London has accused him of rape. And she just laughs hysterically. Or, or I don't know, maybe not hysterically. She just laughs. So, uh, like, what does this scene mean? I wonder. Um, but I think this kind of blurring of the boundaries, so the borderline between monogamy and not monogamy, between the bourgeois life and all of the people who didn't quite make it, to be bourgeois somehow, or who are, like you say, economically not self-sufficient, who like might be committed, as you say, to an authentic artistic life, but pay the price for this uh, hugely uh, in terms of what else they can do. I agree with you about the analysis of the main guy's uh, sort of cowardice, like you said. I, you know, this inability to decide is also a kind of borderline state, right? It's a liminal state that he finds himself in, unable to commit fully to the bourgeois lifestyle, unable to commit without coercion to um, to having a child. I, I mean, I would slightly temper maybe your reading of the wife as, um, I, I, I don't know, abusive or, or, or engaged in sexual assault. I mean, I know what you mean. Like, the, So the party they go to, they take uh, drugs and... She kind of, um, I don't know, I mean, manipulates him into having sex. I mean, she asks him to have sex with her at the party, and he does. They're both, they're both high. I, I don't know. I mean, I think she's made it clear that she, she wants to have a child. I, I think if he really didn't, he didn't have to have sex with her. I, I wonder if she's really so manipulative. But maybe this is a, a contentious point, especially in the context of, oh my goodness me, the British news this week. I'm sure you followed some of this Russell Brand story, but it's opened up. I think we should maybe discuss it because it's opened up a whole can of worms around 
liberal liberalism and attitudes towards sexual behavior and also the past and various things uh and i think this film and the broader context around liberalism and and sex is um how to put it yeah it, it identifies a series of fault lines or indeed borderlines in the culture where there is no clear foundation so Clearly, without, for example, a religious structure or very not just an example, like without without a kind of religious model for, let's say, having children, the idea that marriage and children is a sanctified and and holy thing to do and that one produces in a meaningful relationship to God, then what is the point of having children, really? Like this is a kind of question that people have to ask themselves. You know, children will take uh, away your time, your effort. It's a sacrificial act. It's extremely time consuming. It, it's life altering. It's uh, a massive commitment financially and existentially. We know that we're in the kind of midst of a, a demographic uh, collapse uh, in, in many countries, like which is to say that we're below replacement, wa- uh, replacement rate. Um, and not only in the rich Western countries, in other countries too, something is happening here. And I think this kind of uh, liminal state that the main character Mads finds himself in is is hardly unexpected, given the um, I suppose the cultural dominance of a certain model of individual pleasure and hedonism. I mean, what it is that Mads really want wants is perhaps to remain in this state, this liminal state, right? Because what does it mean to not commit? Right. Because what is it to commit? In fact, you know, to say to somebody else, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Right. You don't know what that's going to be like. You might you might change character. You might, you know, fancy other people. You might want to change jobs. You might have very different political opinions on certain issues. But there is a sense in which that kind of project is in itself uh, a commitment to the project. Right. So it's not just to the other person. It's to the marriage itself right it's saying whatever else happens i'm going to try and do this thing and i'm going to try and do it well hopefully you know so marriage rates are also um on the decline uh, as well as we know so there's a sense in which not committing is a way of preserving a liminal state of indecision clearly it's not the same for men as for women if women want to have children they really have to get a move on <laughs> Like things get very, very uh, time pressured after the age of, let's say, 30 and especially after the age of 35, which is the age of the the characters in the film, which is not coincidental. Uh, Clearly, the medical doctor will know very well how fertile she is and, you know, how much time and probability she has. Right. She's a rational, practical, bourgeois human being. And she she knows what what it is that she wants and she wants to have a child. Um, but like you say, she's willing to have at least up until that point, uh, a certain liberal levity in her approach to monogamy. Of course, that would have to change with the advent of a child. It becomes much harder for people to run around and simply do whatever they want. Um, and to not want to prolong that state would require a commitment to something, not just to the thing itself, but something beyond that as well. And that's what's absent. You could say that the borderline woman, uh, they're all borderline, but the woman who most explicitly performs borderline symptoms, the the kind of uh, the woman who becomes 
deranged and obsessive and keep sending messages and acting out and and so on uh, is in a way more uh, truthful, more authentic, more committed to uh, a certain, uh, I don't know, literary, poetic model of madness. Like she's the real poet. He is the wannabe fakester, you know, that they have a discussion about what it means to be a poet. And of course, what it means to be a poet is to fail. You know, a poet is always a, a failed poet. But she's the, the successful writer to some degree, at least with, this is implied. Um, and indeed, she is committed to her, her craft. Um, I'm not sure her text messages particularly reveal any great literary genius, but this is the nature also of the, this kind of writing and this kind of technology, which debases us, makes all of us kind of uh, victims of uh, a distracted... A high-speed, desperate need for communication itself. You know, Baudrillard talks about this as the ecstasy of communication. You know, we become obsessed with mediation for its own sake. You know, we we want to send messages. Uh, also, the word for angels, angels are messengers. Uh, this is something that uh, various theorists, media theorists, uh, Reggie Debray, Bruno Latour, and others become obsessed with um, around the time of when globalization is really kicking off in the 90s and the internet starts to become more of a reality. They're obsessed with the idea that we are becoming, in a way, creatures of mediation and communication and, and nothing else, in a way. All the angels have been brought down to, to earth and we're sort of simply performing this these acts of communication constantly. And the phone is is very much like this. There's a There's some very interesting dark moments in the film where the the drug-like nature of the technology is really pushed like there are some quite horrifying scenes they have a very eerie uh dark energy where there is this kind of um parallel being drawn between drugs and and technology and the way in which like drugs can technology makes us mad in different ways it might it accentuate our worst aspects and draw out these character flaws, these personality disorders, um, and make us, if you like, the worst possible versions of ourselves uh, in a way that is not human, um, but is something inhuman um, and something that feeds a kind of technological machine, um, which, which may or may not be, you know, demonic in the, in the older sense. Uh, the one, the one comment I would just finish on in relation to this film is, uh, I, I was, I was very surprised, but I suppose it makes for cinematic, uh, it, it has a cinematic reason that none of the people really turned the sound on their phone off, so that their phones were constantly beeping, <laughs> which, uh, especially if you were sort of being stalked by some woman that you'd slightly unfairly. Uh, sleep slept with and you were sort of being harassed by you would probably put your phone on silent just so that the person you're with didn't say who is this person texting you all the time <laughs> but uh but I understand why for perhaps for cinematic reasons that was not uh not done but I think it, it you could have told the same story with a with the phones on on silent but I I would recommend this film I think it's a very you know interesting first film and uh it has as you say, Benjamin, like quite a lot to tell us about the state of life uh, and meaning and economics and material and psychological reality for uh, millennials. It, the closest film to it actually 
that came to mind was another Scandinavian film. I don't know if it's Swedish, maybe is uh, um, it's called The Worst Person in the World. I don't know if you've seen this film. It's 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 quite good. It's um, it's a bit it's a bit that film's a little bit more twee than this one. This one's a bit darker. But The Worst Person in the World has a similar uh, premise. It's to do with kind of millennials coming to terms with. Uh, with these kind of relationship decisions, whether to have a family or not, whether to have a job that makes money or not, uh, and so on. Um, I don't know if you've looked it up, um, Benjamin, where where it was set or where it's from. Yeah, I haven't seen that film, but it looks interesting and might be worth, worth doing at some point. So I haven't seen it, can't say much about that mm-hmm. that other film. There's so many other things that you said that I have all sorts of thoughts about. I firmly agree that the least realistic thing about the film is the fact that the phones <laughs> make any sound at all. Nobody's phone makes any sound at all anymore. My mother, who's you know, much older than me, is completely perplexed by the fact that my phone doesn't make sound. She goes, well, how do you know when someone's calling you? And I say, well, <laughs> The whole point is that I don't want to be interrupted all the time willy-nilly by people whenever they want a message or call me. Nobody does. The way that we take back control is by turning (laughs) off the sound. That is the number one easiest thing you can do as a young person to give yourself some (laughs) level of control over how you relate to the internet. Turn off the sound. Uh, The other thing you could do is buy a bad phone that isn't that fun to use. Mm. That's what I've always done. I've always bought bad phones deliberately that are not very fun to use. Uh, It it is my experience that if you are messaging on the computer, if you're using messenger apps or WhatsApp on the computer, that you do tend to message better, that it's Mm -hmm. more like letter writing. It gives rise to more complex uh, thinking and, and typing because you can type on a computer much faster than you can type on a phone. Even proficient phone users can't go as fast on the phone as they can on the keys. And that's something that I think in the 2000s that the smartphone made this situation worse and changed it fundamentally. We were creating a certain kind of internet around the laptop or the desktop as a device that I think you could legitimately argue about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. It was the transition from the laptop or the desktop to the phone that led to the pivot to video and the pivot to images and the the emojis and all of the things that became arguments against all of this stuff. It all came out of the phone as a device. I, I like to defend the personal computer. I think the personal computer was good. But the phone is bad. <laughs> you can also play Civ on a computer and you can't play it on a phone. Yes, you can play all the good games on a, on a computer and none of them will work on a phone. They're all too complicated it's for the true. phone. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's true in so many different senses. Uh, I, I do think that uh, one of the worst things that uh, a person can do in a relationship is to make the partner have children when the partner has said that they are not ready for that or are not committed to doing that. Sure. Because that is not just an imposition of an experience for a day. That's an imposition of a lifetime commitment. In the case of our Danish character, I think a big part of his fear of having children is that this will forever take away from him the possibility of being a poet. There is some part of him that would like to be a poet, but he's not willing to pay any price for being a poet. He's not willing to actually sacrifice in any material way to be a poet. He'd like to be a poet without paying the price. Yes. The closest he can come to doing that is sleeping with people who write. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. But at the same time, I mean, I agree with you about the putting, you know, tricking people into having children or pressuring them into when they don't want to is, is, is obviously uh, unethical. It's not, it's not okay. At the same time, if you're a guy in a long-term relationship with a woman that's serious and may as well be marriage or is heading towards marriage, and you know or you suspect that she wants to have children, and I know women who've been in this situation, they know their time is running out. Men should know too that it's extremely unfair to stay in a long-term relationship if you are not prepared to make that decision, at least at a certain point, because otherwise you should get out immediately and, and allow the woman to find someone to with whom she has enough time to have children with. Do you know what I mean? Like I know women yes. who've been left high and dry in that situation, you know, where the man Although is left. Although in this film, yeah. he makes it very evident that he does not really want to have children. If he does it, it will be under some level of duress. Uh, and he also, by wanting the open relationship in the first place, makes it very clear he's not a very committing, uh, commitment-oriented person, that he lacks a certain maturity. And part of what's going on is that she is not totally bourgeois. There's a gap in her bourgeois character, which is why she wants a man like this. She wants a man who goes to drug-fueled parties and likes to sleep around. The, uh, she wants a man who wishes he could be a poet. These deviations in him are a way for her to vicariously enjoy those deviations that she doesn't possess internally. So she does have a deviation insofar as she's drawn to that kind of man and wants to be in a relationship with someone who is really obviously not the ideal person for the kind of bourgeois family that she wants to build, a guy who does a bunch of hard drugs while he works a professional job and says openly that he doesn't want to make a bourgeois family is not the ideal candidate for becoming a but bourgeois I think that's, in the but, first instance. But that's, that is what the bourgeoisie is. They are exactly this person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, it's not anti-bourgeois to be someone who's like bohemian and takes drugs and sleeps around and but also has a family or at some point like they just turn up or the woman coerce like this is the bourgeois lifestyle like i i you know and i think and, and also if you're sleeping around if you're having sex with random other women especially if they're a little bit unstable like they could also get pregnant i mean it's not like you're protecting yourself from pregnancy by sleeping with random other women do you know what I mean? Well, we like, don't know. We don't know to what degree he uses protection, or uh, you know, there might be a conversation off screen about that. I don't think we get a sense that he is risking <laughs> pregnancy with all of the other women he sleeps with. Uh, no, but it's it's always accepted so far as all sexual activity introduces yeah. that possibility. But he probably he's probably using protection, or he's probably checking with those women. Although you should not trust what people say, you should be careful. No, of course not. And I, I think if you really want to not have children, you don't have procreative sex. I mean, with anyone. Like, this is, I mean, this is a question for everybody, right? Like, how one yes, deals... but for a lot of people from his kind of background, that's not a realistic ask. I think yeah. part of what is going on here is that the bourgeois... Uh, the bourgeoisie is very individualistic, so it's not mm -hmm. capable of analyzing its own condition in this structural material way. So, you know, okay, yeah, he might be someone who likes to sleep around and do drugs individually, but that doesn't mean that he can't also be a good dad is a very non-structural way of thinking about it. The, the fact that these behaviors don't go along very straightforwardly with these other behaviors that she wants, that there's a contradiction there, uh, is something that you can only obviate 
if you say, well, these, these rules of thumb don't apply to individuals who can always transcend them by being you know, morally or spiritually strong and stoic and overcoming in their behavior. All she has to do is inspire him you know, by getting pregnant. And then the fact of the pregnancy will compel him to overcome these other aspects of his nature to govern them in such a way so that they fit into the bourgeois schema. And ultimately, there will be some kind of reconciliation where his creative tendencies or his non-bourgeois tendencies will enrich in some way the family ultimately. But this is a way of thinking that denies the degree to which there are real contradictions here. Mm -hmm. And that way of thinking is is quintessentially bourgeois. This kind of excuse making about these traits is a a highly individualistic way of assessing these situations. And that's why I think people slip into this kind of stuff, into these structures that are, of course, not going to work. That's why so many bourgeois families ultimately fail. There's no willingness to take seriously that flags are flags for a reason. What do you mean by flags? Yeah, he has all of these flags from the point of view of someone trying to construct a bourgeois family. And this is, I think, in the States, there's still a lot of people who are college educated, who just straightforwardly want to make a bourgeois family. That is the normal Mm -hmm. Midwest checklist thing to do, right? Uh, And for these people, these European dating norms are all obvious flags from the point of view of constructing a bourgeois family. Yeah. I think in a lot of European (laughs) contexts, the feeling is that, well, you don't have any choice. Everybody's like this. And so you just have to kind of finesse it and and you have to convince yourself that somehow these things can can be made to fit. Uh, But in a North American context, these things are just giant red flags that mm. cause all of your friends to say, why are you with that guy? He's clearly not interested in what you're interested in, uh, in part because there are still a substantial number of Americans who are s- sufficiently religious or even you know, secular, but but very uh, self-disciplined because mm-hmm. of a recent legacy of religion in their uh, family who view view this kind of stuff as stuff that does have to be taken seriously. That's a really interesting comment. I hadn't quite have thought of that. I mean, it's oh, yeah. in North America, if yeah. somebody comes to you and says, how about an open relationship? <laughs> Most of the people in your life will go, this is a totally unserious person. <laughs> yes, I, there is a sort of libertine aspect to the European life. I mean, it's also we have a different attitude towards abortion as well, which is obviously an extremely contentious issue. Um, obviously just been relitigated in America. I keep using the word relitigated this week. It's like the 75th time I've used this word. Go on. Bear in mind, guys, I'm not from New York or LA. I'm from Indiana. Yeah. Yes. I'm not just talking about coastal. I'm talking middle America. No, I... There are norms. I'm sure, you you know, and and it's it's sort of good that there are. I mean, if everybody was like a deranged, drug-taking, libertine poet... Nothing would get done. You know, I mean, no, not everybody can be that person. Like the world would end really quickly if everyone was actually this person. Well, this is why in the States, by the way, the, the question of marijuana legalization mm-hmm. becomes so central. Because in Europe, people will take illegal drugs and, and say that that kind of illegal activity can nonetheless be somehow made bourgeois. That you know, Breaking the rules can somehow be compatible yes. with bourgeois. In the States, marijuana must be made legal or it must be decriminalized so that it can fit with being bourgeois. Um, It has to be formalized. It's why the gay marriage thing becomes such a huge deal in the States rather than in Europe, because it has to be formalized in the States, because in the States, the codes and and the norms and the laws are still taken much more seriously 
that's, on an individual that's, personal level. That's so interesting. I suppose in Britain and I mean, less so in other European countries, which are kind of republics or, you know, I mean, also monarchy republics. But um, I, I don't know how to put it. We, we have a class system which permits transgression within the class. Right. So there's a there's a joke about how Julie Birchall always makes this joke about how the upper class and the, the lower class basically do the same thing. Right. They 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 they, they take drugs and they sleep around and they. They love blood sports. It's just the different kinds, you know, like they're high status if you're upper class to, to hunt foxes. It's low status to, I don't know, watch a dog fight or whatever. <laughs> but they're still basically the same people. And and she says the upper class and the lower class are basically, they're the same in the sense that they, they do what they like and they indulge their desires. And it's this neurotic middle class who obey the rules and... You know, and that that's who the law was for. And we did really see this during COVID when the, the elites themselves in Britain broke the rules <laughs> flagrantly and repeatedly, including to have affairs and drink and take drugs and travel around. And the working class, a lot of them broke the rules too. <laughs> but nobody, you know, and they didn't care. And But the middle class really did care. They took the laws. And the, the middle rules. class is bothered about hypocrisy. Yes. All I mean, which is... Which is fair enough, but I, I don't even know. I mean, is the guy in this film being a hypocrite? This is a question. I mean, oh, he's I think he's just—I think he's just weak. No, yeah. I don't think it's his fault that he's weak. I think this kind of weakness is is structurally manufactured. Uh, but I think he's just—he's just weak. He's not someone who is willing to risk anything for what he actually values. Yeah. So he then adopts a life which includes a bunch of things that he doesn't really like or views as a bit silly or, or not really things that he feels comfortable with, and then tries to sustain that foolishly. And when you try to sustain foolishly roles that you aren't really committed to, uh, that necessarily breaks down. It leads to transgressive behavior in other aspects of life. Yeah. You can't adopt a role you're not really committed to. And so in some ways, he's honest for saying, I'm not committed to this role. Mm -hmm. I'm not really committed to it. But in other ways, he's dishonest insofar as he will not then go and find a role that is appropriate for him. He won't go and change his life. He wants to stay in roles that don't work while transgressing as a way of coping and perpetuating this state, this liminal borderline state that he's in between the world of the bourgeoisie and the world of the working class or the world of, uh, you know, the high, the high arts. Yes, exactly. I have a question about the poet, the, um, or the fantasy of being a poet or, you know, which is sort of between success, failure, you know, which is sort of something to do with failure. Also something to do maybe with like prostitution and lower classes. And, you know, we have a kind of romantic history of poetry itself in which romantic young men are slumming it and you know like Rambeau and, and Verlaine and all these people you know engaging in indeed sort of sexual uh, behavior and drug taking and, and and you know often dying young and uh, so on and and but it but it the, the idea of this this idea of a poet which is a very specifically romantic idea of like the the wandering man you know the romantic hero who's searching for beauty or whatever like how, why is why is being a poet seen at least by this character and in, and more generally as like let's say incompatible with being a father like why i mean we have this idea like we there's that very famous quote from Cyril Connolly the critic who talks about the the pram in the hallway being the kind of death of 
creativity. You know, like this, the idea that once you have a family or the bourgeois life, you know, it will it will by necessity kill the the poet. It will kill the writer. It will hold the man back. But I don't see it's why it's a distribution you... of time problem. Yeah, there isn't enough time. But and, and so, if you're also <laughs> if you're having experiences that are the same as everybody else's, then you're not going to be inspired to write things that are creative or different or distinctive. So if you adapt completely the bourgeois lifestyle, then everything you write will be bourgeois and there won't be anything distinctive or interesting about it. Uh, he's half a foot in by having that advertising job. If he has kids and an advertising job between those two things, that will be all of his time, all of his experience and everything he writes will come from that and be about that and therefore be, from his point of view, indistinctive. Yeah. But I mean, while so- he's still got one foot out the door, there's some possibility of him occasionally getting out and doing some poetry, you know, occasionally getting out and having these kinds of experiences, like with the English girl, where he has some kind of, of non bourgeois experience from which to be inspired or from which to write. Uh, but as soon as he is, is both feet in on that, he will not have space or time for those kinds of experiences and will only be able to write bourgeois poetry, which to him is valueless. Mm, okay, so the Cyril Connolly, Connolly quote, I want to, to, to repeat uh, properly because it's such a very interesting quote. So he says, there is no more somber enemy of good art than the pram in the hall. So that's the, that's the quote, which is perfectly encapsulates what you're saying as as a as the fear at least um but i wonder you know in the situation millennial situation perhaps where you have increasing numbers of arts graduates increasing numbers of people who are more like the the english woman who have maybe i mean to some extent you're right she's made a decision that she's committed to her art her writing um and she has sacrificed the the normal milestones of or the the usual historic milestones of adult development, having your own house, having your own family, having a a stable job, let's say. Um, But in a world in which there are increasing numbers of people like this, (laughs) uh, there is therefore no real norm anymore. Like it seems to me increasingly that the people who have children now uh, are again the working class continues to reproduce more or less, probably slightly fewer. I mean, when I was at school, um, girls did still get pregnant quite young. There were quite a few girls who had girls. Teenage pregnancy was still a big social question in the nineties. If you're a working class girl, you tended and you got pregnant as a teenager, you would leave school and have your baby. Uh, if you're a middle-class girl and you got pregnant, you would have an abortion. Um, and then you'd probably get married in your 20s and, and have a family. And most of the people, many of the people I went to school with live near the school, like where we grew up. And that's, that's still the norm, or it was until quite recently. And then very few people would go away to cities, to universities, like me, you know, to leave their family, never to never return. Um, I mean, I still see my family, but I never, you know, I left at 18. I've never uh, lived back at home. I always lived elsewhere for the rest of my my life. And how to put this, if you have increasing numbers of people for whom there is no norm anymore, even one to define yourself against, well, if there's no norm, there's nothing to define yourself against, then the only people who can really have children are going to be people who 
are basically memed into it by their specific circumstances, right? So it's very obvious that if you grow up, grow up around other children, if you are in a big family and you're around babies and kids, you you have more of an understanding of what that is, you know, to to look after children, to you know, you're used to it. And now we have a situation where many people have gone to university and have not spent any time really with children, are completely alienated from that experience at a second hand. And for whom I think that idea becomes even more frightening, right? There's no suggestion in the film, by the way, of, of any of their parents. Like you don't see any of their families. They're, they're very isolated bourgeois subjects, right? Like they're in very rich, nice European cities. They're in Copenhagen and London. You know, they're, of course, these are nice places to live, but they, as you say, they're bourgeois individuals. They're very, very individual. They are not members of families, noticeably or visibly. Um, and there is no sense of transmission. There's no sense of any moral or religious transmission whatsoever. They have simply bought into this system, the system that gives you a status according to its own logic, like the doctor. The doctor is still a good job. It's a professional job. The doctors are permanently going on strike in the UK at the moment. Incidentally, we're having lots of junior and not only junior consultants on strike as well. Very interesting kind of crisis of the professions, really. Um, striking over paying conditions. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what, what should these characters do what would you do if you were these characters well so if you want to be a poet <laughs> you know, there's the question is who where are you getting the money from who's your patron right poets need patrons real artists have patrons right now in a functioning society that supports the arts the patrons are institutions and the institutions are reasonably open to different kinds of artistic approaches a plurality of artistic methods <laughs> and practices and therefore you know you would feel that you have a reasonable chance if you're good of getting into the institutions it's no longer the case that artists can feel this way yeah. you know reasonably so well in societies where there is no formal mechanism for supporting the arts or where that mechanism is defunct who are the patrons well, the patrons are individual rich people and rich families. The patrons are your parents and the patrons are your partner or your spouse. Mm -hmm. Those are your choices, really. And a lot of people feel that unless they get a patron who's an institution or a billionaire, that they have failed in some way. They need a patron that is outside of their immediate circles to feel like they've really made it in some way as an artist. Uh, and for certain kinds of artistic projects, uh, you know, depending on what kind of family situation you have, it's just too expensive to fund it some other way. For instance, if you're making a film, you do really, as a matter of practical course, mm -hmm. need some kind of patron, usually outside the family or outside of, of one's partner or spouse. Uh, but in many, many cases, the most effective way to become an artist or a creator is going to be to have your parents or your spouse be your patron. Now, our English girl in this film has her parents as a patron. She's able to make art. They let her live at home. They resent her a little bit, but they don't seem to be torturing her all the time. Mind you, she, 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 is a, she is an ungrateful bitch. I mean, she could tidy a room and like clean some dishes. Like, come on, man. <laughs> 
Well, but this is the trouble. When your parents are your patron, there is a sense that you don't really have autonomy, that you're infantilized, <laughs> or that you're treated like a kid. So a lot of people don't like having their parents as the patron, right? Yeah. Now, the, the way to accept having your parents as the patron is to consider the alternatives. Billionaire, institution, or you need a partner or spouse. So this English girl, because she doesn't like having her parents as the patron, is desperate to have a partner or a spouse who is a patron, right? I now, generally does speaking, she, does she want someone to pay for her? I don't, I don't know if that's what she wants. Does she say? Well, that? she can't pay for herself very clearly, and she's going after a man who's got a professional job. There's an implication mm. in doing that. Okay. There's an implication, unless she's saying she wants to give up that being a writer so that she can take a job where she pulls in money so that she can pull weight financially. And she never gives any indication of wanting to do that. On the contrary, the one time she suggests a concrete course of action is that they should both run off to the Saharan desert together. <laughs> right? So it's a, she doesn't really even want to think about the actual yeah. practical implications of what would be involved. Right. But yeah. she's attracted to him in part because he has resources and he's not her parents. And he, maybe he likes her. Right. He's she's attracted to him, not just as a lover or as a partner, but as a patron. He is an attractive patron. Right now, from his point of view, he's really missed the boat here because he's with a girl who's got money, but she insists that he work. She mm. insists that he have children. She insists that he do other things apart from being a poet. And when he writes poetry, she thinks it's cute, but she doesn't take it seriously. So he's with completely the wrong kind of person for him. But you can imagine how maybe at one point in time he thought that maybe by dating someone who was a professional, <laughs> he could do poetry, right? Maybe he thought that, or maybe on an unconscious level, he hoped for that, but that hasn't materialized. So a lot of the time, if you go and look for the spouse or the partner to be the patron, in point of fact, they won't deliver. They will actually insist that you have children, or they'll actually insist that you pull your weight financially. So when you leave the parents and go to the spouse or partner, oftentimes it puts you in an even more vulnerable position than you were previously in, even though it looks like a move toward autonomy and freedom. In many respects, it's often not. But then the question is, A, do you have parents who are capable of, of being your patron? Are they financially capable of doing that? And, which isn't always the case. And B, can you find a modus vivendi with your parents that allows you to actually create work? Or will you get into such a bad state mentally and psychologically like this girl does mm -hmm. from living with her parents that you're unable to create anything anyway, or all of your work is just the product of the pain and resentment that you're feeling and is not able to be constructive? Yes, I, I can see the various <laughs> dilemmas. I, I, in a slightly frivolous and flippant way, though, I, I do want to come back to the poet question because it doesn't take that long to write. But I mean, I wrote poems. I mean, I, I guess I am relatively in a well-placed in the sense that I've chosen certain things to, or not to do certain things in order to give myself time to, to think and to... To write. Um, you've written a lot of things, Nina. You're, you've written a lot of things. You've <laughs> been very successful as a writer. You've been externally validated in all sorts of different ways for your writing. Magazines have published you and journals have published you and book publishers have agreed to publish your books. You're true. externally validated. The poet who's just getting started needs external validation and therefore needs not just to write poetry, but for someone to see it and go, that's good poetry. Otherwise, <laughs> the poet will feel incomplete in some way. But the real poet would write poems anyway. And, and, and even if no one in his or her lifetime read them. In theory, but in <laughs> practice, 
artists do need external validation. <laughs> They're not able to work in the absence of it. Now, once you get some external validation, it's then possible to do without it because you have the memory of it from before. And this is, I think, the, the wonderful thing in your case. You received sufficient external validation early enough in your career that you can then go, I don't need it. I'm done with it. I, I'm now going to go and do other <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah, but that's because I'm really good. <laughs> Well, you were. You were really good. You were able to do all of those things and get that external validation. And so now you operate from a position of abundance in that regard. So when we deal with people who don't have that yet, mm. who are still trying to get that, it's a different different. Context. No, I mean, I mean to be to be serious for a second, I, I do I do understand what you're saying. And I and you know, as somebody who does have a relative degree of profile and, you know, even if I was cancelled, I still got writing it, you know, it was you fine. You a Wikipedia page. I have a, I've had a Wikipedia page for years, yeah. And and I had a book that sold, or pamphlet, that sold like 10,000 copies more than, got translated when I was quite young. So, yeah, I mean, it's true. I had that experience. I have a, a background. I have a, I don't know, portfolio, whatever you want to say. And I have a job. I have a job now. I was unemployed for three years. That was that was fun <laughs> too. <laughs> but um, that was actually good. I think it was a good experience actually to leave academia and to be writing poems for cash on the South Bank and whatever else I did. Uh, often doing events for rich people actually. Uh, that was quite a lot of what I did. Salons and and so on. Performing like being a performing monkey. But I you know I do get contacted by a lot of people who are looking for ways to be published, to have people read their work, to, you know, get some help or to get, like you say, just any kind of recognition. And I'm sure this is the case for anybody who has any kind of profile, however medium-sized, that they will get people contacting them saying, like, how do I do what you do or did? How do I break in? How do I do this? And it is, yeah, it's it's like I can't, I feel bad sometimes because I can't answer every email or read everything that's been sent. And there is there is a kind of often like a quite prominent pronounced gender imbalance. I think that men, young men, I mean, I'm not saying they're wrong to, to, to feel this, but they, they often feel emboldened to contact people that they don't know and ask for advice or ask for time. And I think... I get a I get far fewer young women contact me for on the same basis, you know, with the same demands and desires. And yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that really. Um That also may have something to do with the way you're currently being politically coded. <laughs> oh sure. Sure. But I think even on the left or in philosophy I mean philosophy is very male dominated. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I know, I know what you mean. I think, I think there is an imbalance in in various, not writing as such, because there's lots of female writers. There's lots of, but I think particular kinds of writing, so political analysis yeah. and philosophy, you know, tend to code very male. And yeah, it's true. I mean, also, I think women are more risk averse. So to say something which goes against like what you're supposed to say. Um, carries maybe a higher cost at least the idea of what of of what risk might cost you for women I think um women are more social I mean these are generalizations of course but and uh, obviously I didn't follow all these generalizations but you know I, I think there are tendencies we can certainly talk about tendencies right in how men and women behave and I, I think that social approval 
of a certain kind is um is maybe often what women are looking for like the women do not like to be excluded from a certain social acceptance it's the currency of a certain female discourse is is a kind of uh, agreeableness we could say or something like this i don't, it's, i'm not therefore i'm not therefore saying that all women are agreeable or that women can't be unpleasant or disagreeable of course they can be but i don't know as a as a background noise i feel like there is this I don't know. So it's like social difference. Whereas men, wow. especially if they want to be poets and they want to be individuals, you know. I think there are also, there are lots of, of bold male autodidacts who have taught themselves stuff and want to believe that that's that's just as good as, as having gone a more traditional route. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in general, the uh, more female socialization is to go, well, if I've not been embraced by the institutions, that means I'm not good. Yeah, perhaps. And I, I think we live in this very sort of bureaucratic, technocratic, institutional, institutionalized culture, which is, you know, perhaps becoming more feminized um, or certain kind of feminine values are being encoded. Uh, so, yeah, risk risk aversion and uh, and so on are being kind of encoded. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's. I mean, maybe this is something we could talk about on the B side. I think we should probably discuss the some of the issues thrown up by the Russell Brand <laughs> affair, um, and it would be interesting to see how, if at all, that news has travelled to America. Or, or really, it's not. It's not really about him, I suppose. It's more about the kind of what this tells us about the liberal society, the society we currently live in, and its its expectations around sexual mores and how things have changed, perhaps shifted quite dramatically, e- even in the space of 20, 30 years. Um, yeah, I'm interested to hear what you, you think about that. There's also some other stuff in the news we might talk about on the B side. You know, There's the United Auto Workers Union mm-hmm. going on strike. There's also you know, Rishi Sunak you know, sticking at the top of his Twitter feed this thing about the XL bully dog, oh, this breed of dog that he wants to ban. And the, the politics of that, it's a very interesting instance of the culture war this this uh, use of the the dangerous dog absolutely yeah i'd, I'd like to talk about dog. that on the b side too okay we're going to talk about dogs and russell brand <laughs> section dangerous dogs and sexual mores and uh uh also workers going on strike we've covered that quite a bit in compact i i just like to plug my my, my magazine <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, we should we should tell people a little bit more about what we think we might talk about on the B side. It's true. So okay. Well, these these could are the get. things. <laughs> yeah, these are the things we're going to go talk about on the B side now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, but uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.